Hi, my name is Rongan Chasji, GP, television presenter, and author of the best-selling books *The Stress Solution* and *The Four Pillar Plan*. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people, both within as well as outside the health space, to hopefully inspire you, as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of my Feel Better Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chatterjee and I am your host. This is the final episode of this current season of my Feel Better Live More podcast. As per last year, I am taking a complete break over August. I will not be releasing any new podcasts until early September. I'm going to be switching off, spending some time with my family and spending some time doing the things that I don't usually get time to do and really try and recharge my batteries. I hope you are going to get some time off to do the same as well. Now, for this final episode, I've decided to release a short compilation of four separate episodes. There have been so many amazing conversations over the past 12 months, and I've tried my best to pick four clips from different episodes that represent all of these different aspects of our health. As you know, I aim to cover a whole variety of different topics on this podcast to keep things interesting but also to help us understand that health is not just about one thing. This podcast is about 360 degree health, how all the different things that we expose ourselves to each day add up and play a significant role on how we feel and how much we get out of life. This is absolutely not a best of compilation. There were far too many brilliant episodes in this season to choose from. These are simply four clips that I've chosen to reflect different aspects of our health. The first clip is from episode 58 of my podcast with Dr. Tara Swartz, the neuroscientist. Tara explains how we can all take back control of our lives by training our brains to create the life that we want to live. The next clip is with Dr. Gabor Mate from episode 37, which was entitled How Our Childhood Shapes Every Aspect of Our Health. I have to say, I think this conversation with Gabor Mate was one of the most important conversations I've ever had on the podcast. In this clip, Dr. Mate talks about addiction, how it is not a choice. And he explains that basically all of us, or most of us, are affected with some kind of addiction, whether it be alcohol, nicotine, sugar, sex, work, exercise, gambling, the list is endless. And he calls for a much more compassionate approach towards addiction, where we look for the source of the pain inside us that has led to the addiction in the first place. Dr. Mate makes a really compelling case that the root cause of all addiction comes down to our childhoods. We then move on to the third clip, which is with the hypnotherapist Chloe Brotheridge from episode 65, Developing Confidence and Learning to Say No. Chloe talks about self-love and self-care, be it food, sleep, relaxation or exercise, and how we need to put ourselves first in order to be the best that we can be for others whether that's your children, your family, your friends, or your colleagues. She has some specific advice for parents that actually carries across to everyone because we're better able to care for others when we're in a good place ourselves. And then I finish off with the amazing Johan Hari, episode 52, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression. Johan shares 
a really powerful story from his 40,000 mile journey across the world to determine what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And he talks about the incredible people he met in a Berlin district called Cotty, sharing a heartwarming story of how an unlikely community was born out of desperation and the unbelievable transformations that occurred for the whole community as a result of it. I really hope you enjoy these four clips. Do stay listening to the end, but I will be signing off the season with some of my thoughts. Now, before we get started, I do need to give a quick shout out to the sponsors of today's episode who are critical and essential in order for me to put out weekly episodes like this one. Athletic Greens have been a long-term supporter of this podcast for the duration of season two, and I do think that ethos and the ideology behind this company is absolutely fantastic. Now, you know that I prefer people to get their nutrition from foods, but I do recognize that for some of us, this is not always possible. Athletic Greens is actually one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've ever come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. So if you are looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. If you have not tried Athletic Greens yet, I would highly encourage you to take advantage of this offer and to give it a go. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. I talk a lot about health and well-being and, you know, we often talk about food and exercise and sleep uh, and stress, which of course are all very, very important. But but what I really like about your approach is that you you talk a lot about how important our thoughts are, how important our mind is. And I don't feel that that gets enough airtime when we talk about health and well-being. Why is it that our thoughts are so important? So I actually think that the pillars that you talk about, like sleep, diet, exercise, mindfulness, um, they're important to improve the quality of our thoughts. Because if you actually think about it, why are you doing those things? You're not just doing it so that your body is in good shape. You're doing it so that you can think more clearly, you can do your job better, you can have better relationships. Um, And all of that really boils down to how you think. Um, so all the physical factors put your brain in good condition and then it's what you do with it that really counts. Yeah, I guess it's, um, it, it works both ways, doesn't it? Because I guess, you know, paying attention to these physical factors helps your brain function, helps you think more clearly. But at the same time, I guess if you change your mindset and you work on your thoughts, it can make it easier to actually do a lot of these physical things we're talking about. Absolutely. I mean, one of the chapters in the book is about that brain-body connection. So I think because psychology was around for a long time before we could scan brains and bodies, it left us with this sort of idea that there's a cutoff at the neck and that what you think and feel isn't connected to what goes on in your body and vice versa. But absolutely, if you're cold or hungry or tired, it affects the quality of thinking. And if you're confident or anxious, it affects the nerves and hormones in your body. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this whole brain-body connection that you do beautifully talk about in the book um, is so important. And I guess for me, it's something that's really been missing 
in my medical training. It's, it's something that I think has been missing for a long time in medicine, particularly 20th century medicine, the way we've, you know, the, the way medicine really, really evolved to do so many great things. But I think we've lost lost the idea that, that really, I guess, people have known for, for donkey's years. Was that one of your frustrations with medicine? I heard you speaking about that on another one of your podcasts, and I, it absolutely resonated with me. I was almost relieved to hear you say it, feel like I'm not the only one. And you'll notice that I sort of started the book by talking about how we evolved and the fact that once we developed this cortex, which is much more, you know, a modern part of the brain that we use for articulated speech and for predicting and planning for the future, the part of the brain that had got us to that point, the intuitive, emotional part of the brain, sort of seemed to be downgraded by society, you know, like logic and um, being able to speak suddenly became important and gut feeling and emotions just became less important. Yeah, I, I totally agree that there, there is that societal narrative, isn't it? Isn't there that, you know, logic is, um, logic is key and intuition sort of gets marginalized and feelings get marginalized. Um, what I think you've done so well, and obviously you, you're, you're very well trained, you know, huge, um, huge scientific backgrounds, you have brought some of these ideas that have been there before to life, but you've got some scientific grounding in them now. And, and one of your, you know, I guess one of your core concepts is how do we create the life that we want? How do we be in charge of uh, what happens to, you know, what happens to our life rather than let life sort of happen to us? Um, is that something you've, is that something you feel you've, you've always had an inkling towards or is this something that has really evolved in your thinking in the past few years? Well, it's funny you should say that because as I look back now, it feels like a lot of the concepts in the book were always there in the way that I lived my life. But even since writing the book, I've come up with this new analogy, which is, let's say you and I want to go on a journey. Would you rather be sitting in the passenger seat and I choose where we go and the route that we take, or would you rather be driving and choosing the destination? It's kind of like that in life. It's very easy to go through the motions every day and let life happen to you. But if you think about it, if we stop and step back, we have a lot more choice in what we tolerate, in what happens to us, in the choices that we make, um, than we necessarily think. So it's easy to just sort of go on autopilot. so many things that we could start talking about but I think the place I'd like to start is something I heard you say once which is addiction is not a choice yeah I think most of society probably thinks that it is a choice and so I wonder if you could clarify that the whole legal system is based on the assumption that people are making the choice to indulge in addictions and therefore the decisions they make um, that flow uh, from that are conscious and deliberate and therefore, of course, what they need to do is to be punished for making such a choice. It's basically the same attitude that a lot of people take towards child rearing. When a child does something we don't like, we punish them. This is our idea of child rearing. Well, with adults, the punishment is called jail or legal sanctions. Um, the assumption is totally false, there's no scientific basis to it, and having worked with addicts, really seriously caught people who've been entrapped in the cycle and, and, and shoals of addiction, 
with, with all the consequences like HIV, homelessness, loss of health, wealth, teeth, beauty, personal relationships. I never saw any instance of anybody having chosen to become that way. And having had my own addictive behaviors, I can also tell you, I never chose, I never woke up one morning and said, my ambition is to become an, become an addict. So it's an entirely shallow behaviorist view of human beings. And what we need to do is to look at the deeper reasons. If what something appears to be a choice, it's an unconscious one. And we still have to look at what is it that would drive a person in that direction. Conscious choice has nothing to do with it, which means to say that the legal system has no logical basis to stand on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how we have decided as a society that some addictions are criminal, but some are okay. Yeah. You know? uh, and I've heard you talk about that many times in the past. I think that, that makes me think of a, a line in your, in, your, in your new book. Well, I say new. It's been out for over 10 years, I think. It's um, been a bestseller all over the world, but we've got it now in the UK in the realm of hungry ghosts. And in the introduction, you say all drugs and all behaviors of addiction, substance dependent or not, whether gambling, sex, the internet or cocaine, all of them either soothe pain directly or distract from it. Hence your mantra, the first question is not why the addiction, but why the pain? And I think that beautifully sums it up. Mm. Um, you know, in, in that you, you're, liking, you're likening addiction to drugs potentially to, you know, sex, gambling, alcohol, maybe shopping. Well, um, so I've had my own shopping addiction, and I can tell you that the, what happens in my brain when I'm indulged in my shopping addiction is exactly the same that happens in the brain of the cocaine addict. In other words, there's an excitation of the reward, incentive, and motivation circuitry. And what the addict is after is that temporary change in brain status. Really what it is, all addictions are an attempt to regulate an unbearable emotional state internally. But you're trying to regulate your internal state through external means. And that's what an addiction is. So temporarily you get a change in the state of your brain, in a change of your physiology. You can do that through drugs. You can also do it through gambling or internet or sex or shopping. But essentially after that same revitalization, of your incentive and motivation circuitry of your brain. And so from my perspective, there's only one universal addiction process that dominates all addicted people. The targets of addiction may be different. The internal effects are much the same. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry, I should add, when you look at the, 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 the sources of it, the states that people are trying to escape are states of emotional distress states of emotional pain, and hence, why the addiction? Not why the addiction, but why the pain? So some people who are listening to this or, or watching this right now <laughs> might be thinking, yeah, I get that, that, that all sounds fine. Um, for those people who are addicted, but I, of course, am not addicted to anything. So you've got, you've got a rather beautiful definition, I think, of addiction, which I think will be really helpful to sort mm -hmm. of go through at the start here so that people listening can actually figure out if it does relate to them or not. Well, when I speak to a room of people and I ask them how many are addicted, most people will only think of drugs, so some people put their hand up. Then I give them my broader definition of addiction, and not everybody puts their hand up. And that definition is that an addiction is manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in, and therefore craves, 
but suffers negative consequences in the long term and is going to be able to give it up. So any behavior, not just drugs, the key hallmarks are craving, pleasure, relief in the short term, negative outcomes in the long term, inability to, to give it up. That's what an addiction is. And that could be to drugs, uh, nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, the legal, the lethal and legal substances, or it could be to heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, fentanyl, cannabis, any number of other substances. But it could also be to sex, to gambling, to shopping, to eating, to work, to exercise, to the internet, to gaming, to pornography, to political power, to the acquisition of wealth, to the hoarding of objects, anything. And, by, and when you give that definition, and you ask people how many here would acknowledge some addiction in their life, sometimes the vast majority of people would put their hands up, which means to say that addictions are on a continuum, it's on a spectrum, and they're distributed, dispersed throughout all of our society. And so that the identified drug addicts make up only a small, narrow segment of our addicted population. Nothing in life is black or white. So let's say you've developed some experiences um, from your childhoods. Um, and let's say, you know, your mum or your dad reacted in a certain way over a certain incident, and that has shaped the way you see things. It doesn't make them a bad parent. Right? Yeah. They were doing the best that they could. And it, it's like saying, well, maybe, you know, 90% of what they did was amazing for you. Maybe there's 10% that ideally we would have done in a slightly different way. Um, that's certainly the way I'm trying to look at it, because it can be quite hard to go down this road for some people. It can be uh, challenging, but I think it's the most rewarding road to go down. I, I really think it is. And I see in my role as a doctor, it's amazing how much I'm now seeing people's emotional programming you know, manifesting in their behaviors. And I think we're really starting to realize, certainly I am, that our childhoods are, 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 are pretty instrumental in determining so many of our, our our life outcomes. But at the same time, then, it's quite a lot of pressure because I'm a parent. So I hear these things and I all I think back to things I've said to my kids. And I think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. And I'm sure many parents listening to this are probably thinking the same thing. So have you got any advice for parents? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to to not be perfectionist about it because a lot of us in modern life can can beat ourselves up about not doing things perfectly or feeling like we're failing. Um, I think the best thing that a parent can do is, is look after themselves, you know, because often people are, well, parents are very busy, very stressed, um, maybe not putting themselves first all the time. And I know that might not always be possible, but trying to take a bit more time for themselves and and more self-care so that as a parent you can be in the best position that you can be in to to be there for other people and it's this idea of knowing that it's not selfish to to look after yourself it's not selfish to um, make sure you're getting enough sleep and eating well it's really and enabling you to be there for other people because you're filling yourself up first yeah i guess in many ways the highest expression of love is self-love because without that it's very hard to be caring it's very hard to be calm with other people be relaxed actually give them what you would like to give to yourself and and i think you know it, it is it's almost a cliche with how many people are talking about self-love but it mm -hmm. but it's not i think it's 
I think it is the highest form of love, is loving yourself. Um, and I, again, it's not something I feel I would have been able to say. I probably wouldn't have been able to think it five years ago, let alone say it publicly mm. on a podcast, you know. But I do think it's that important. And I think once people start to prioritize themselves first and foremost, they become better mothers, better fathers, better work colleagues, better partners, you know, better friends, better anything. I think the theme of connection is really important because you're saying, you know, we know this when individuals see themselves as part of a kind of connected tapestry of wider meaning, right? Just like which would have happened in the tribes in which humans evolved. Um, they feel much better about their lives. They feel much more satisfied. And actually, I learned so much from scientists, some of the leading scientists in the world and reading loads of studies. I think the place that taught me the most about depression and anxiety were not those people, actually. And I'll just tell you the story of what happened Please in this do. place, if that's okay, because it, it, it's something I think about every day. Um, so in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous council estate in Berlin, um, a, a, a German-Turkish woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair and put a sign in her window. She lives on the ground floor. The sign said something like, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. Now, this is a council estate. Um, it's in a funny area. It's called Cotty. It's a poor part of what used to be West Berlin. And basically, no one wanted to live there for years. It was a mixture of um, recent Muslim immigrants like Nuria, um, gay men and punk squatters, right? As you can imagine, these three groups didn't get on very well, but no one really knew anyone, right? No one knew who this woman was. People are walking past her window and they're worried about her. And they're also pissed off because their rents are going up. Loads of people are being evicted. So they know they might be next. People start to knock on Nuria's door. They said, do you need any help? And at first Nuria said, fuck you. I don't want any help. Shut the door in their faces, right? They're like, well, we, we shouldn't just leave her. What should we do? And this was actually the summer of the revolution in Egypt. And one of them was watching it on the telly and they had an idea, right? They, they thought, well, if we, there's a big um, road that goes through Cotty into the center of Berlin. And he said, you know, if we just blocked the road for a day, it goes right through this council estate. He said, if we just block the road for a day and, you know, we protest and we wheel Nuria out, there'll be a bit of a fuss. The media will probably come. They'll probably let us stay. Um, they'll probably, you know, um, there might even be a little bit of pressure to keep our rents down, right? So they decide to do it. They're like, why not? They block the road. Nuri is like, oh, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I may as well let them push me into the middle of the street. And they sit there and they protest. And the media does come. It's a little bit of a kerfuffle that day in Berlin. And then at the end of the day, the police come and they say, okay, you've had your fun. Take it all down. And the people there are like, well, hang on a minute. You haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. Actually, we want a rent freeze for this whole council estate. So when we've got that, then we'll take it down. But of course they knew the minute they left the barricades that they put up, the police would just tear it down anyway. So one of my favourite people at Cotty, uh, Tanya Gartner, who's one of the punk squatters. She wears um, tiny little miniskirts, even in Berlin winter. She's quite hardcore. Uh, <laughs> Tanya had this idea. In her flat, she had a klaxon, you know, those things that make a loud noise at football matches. So she went and got it. She came down and she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade 24 hours a day until we've got what we want. If the, until Nuri gets told she can stay and until we get a rent freeze. Um, and if the police come to take the barricade down, let off the klaxon, we'll all come down from our flats and stop them. So people start signing up to man this barricade, people who would never have met, right? So uh, <laughs> this very unlikely pairing. So Nuria, who's very religious Muslim in a full hijab, was paired with Tanya in her tiny little miniskirt, right? And I can't remember what night shift they got. If it, was, it might be Tuesday nights. So they're sitting there, Tuesday nights, 
super awkward. They're like, we've got, what have we got in common? We've got nothing to talk about. As the weeks went on, they started talking and Tanya and Nuria realized there's something really profound in common. Um, Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 16 from her village in Turkey. And she had two young children and her job was to raise enough money to send back for her husband to come and join her. And um, sitting there in the cold in Cotty, she told Tanya something she'd never told anyone in Germany. Um, she'd always told people. So after she'd been in Berlin for 18 months, she got word from home that her husband was dead. And she'd always told people that he died of a heart attack. He'd actually died of tuberculosis, which was seen as a kind of shameful disease of poverty. That's when Tanya told Nuria something she never talked about. Um, she'd come to Cotty when she was even younger, when she was 15. She'd been thrown out by a middle-class family. She'd made her way. She lived in this punk squat. And she got pregnant not long after she arrived. So they both realised that they had been children with children of their own in this frightening place they didn't understand, right? Mm -hmm. They realised they had loads in common. There were loads of these pairings happening over Cotty of people who would never have taught. There was a young, uh, a young lad who kept being, a Turkish-German lad who kept being nearly thrown out of school. They said he had ADHD. He got paired with a very grumpy old white, German guy called Dieter who said he didn't believe in direct action because he loved Stalin but in this case he'd make an exception who started helping him with his homework he started doing much better at school um, directly opposite this council estate there's a, a gay club called Zudblock it's run by a man I love called Richard Stein who <laughs> to give you a sense of what he's like um, the previous place he owned was called Cafe Anal <laughs> okay. okay this is a pretty hardcore gay club right and when they when they opened it about two years before the protest began you know, there's a lot of religious Muslims there. Some of them had smashed the windows. People were really pissed off. And when the protest began, they, the Zudblock, the gay club, gave, gave all their furniture to the protest. Um, and after a while, they said, you know, you guys could have all your meetings in our club. You could, you know, we'll give you drinks. We'll give you free food. Um, and even the lefties at Cotty were like, look, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings underneath posters for things so obscene. I won't describe them on your podcast, right? It's not going to happen. But actually it did start to happen. As one of the Turkish German women put it to me, we all realised we had to take these small steps to understand each other. After the protest had been going on for about a year, one day a guy turned up at the protest called Tunkai, who was in his early 50s. And Tunkai, when you meet him, it's obvious he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties and he'd been living homeless. But he has an amazing energy about him. And everyone, he started asking if he could help out. Everyone liked him. And by this time, they'd actually, the barricade had turned into a, a physical structure with a roof, right? A lot of them are construction workers. Um, so they started saying to Tunkai, you know, you should come and live in this thing we've built, right? It's quite nice. We don't want you yeah. to be homeless. He started living there. He became a much loved part of the protest camp and after he'd been there for nine months one day the police came they would come every now and then to inspect and Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue so he went to hug one of the police officers but they thought he was attacking them so they arrested him that was when it was discovered Tunkai had been shut away for 20 years in a psychiatric hospital often literally in a padded cell he'd escaped one day lived on the streets for a couple of months and made his way to Cotty at which point the police took him back to this psychiatric hospital so this entire Cotty protest turned itself into a free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital at the other side of Berlin. And these psychiatrists are like, what is this? They've got, you know, they've got, had this person shut away for 20 years and suddenly they've got all these women in hijabs, these punks and these very camp gay men demanding his release. They're yeah. like, oh, they don't understand it. And I remember Uli Hartmann, one of the protesters said to them, yeah, but you don't love him. He doesn't belong with you. We love him. He belongs with us. And 
Many things happened at Coty. I guess the headline is they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across the entire city that got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. They got Tunkai back. He lives there still. But the last time I saw Nuria, I remember her saying to me, you know, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's great. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these incredible people all along and I would never have known. And and so many of the people there, these insights were just below the surface. I remember um, Neriman Tanker, who's another one of the Turkish German women there, saying to me, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, I grew up in a village and I called my whole village home. And I learned when I came to live in the Western world that what you're meant to call home is just your four walls. And then this whole protest began and I started to call all these people my home. Right. And she said she realized in some sense in this culture, we are homeless. Right. There's a Bosnian writer called Alexander Heyman who said home is where people notice when you're not there. By that standard, lots of us are homeless. And it was so clear to me in Cotty. Think about how unhappy these people were. Right. Um, Nuria was about to kill herself. Uh, Tunkai was shut away in a padded cell. Loads of them were depressed and anxious. In the main, these people did not need to be drugged. They needed to be together. They needed to be seen. They needed to be loved and valued. They needed to have a sense that they were part of a tribe, that they had purpose and meaning in their lives. And I remember sitting with Tanya one time outside Ziploc and her saying to me, you know, when you, when you feel like shit and you're all alone, you think there's something wrong with you. But what we did is we came out of our corner crying and we started to fight. And we realized we were surrounded by people who felt the same way. And to me, this is the most important thing I learned, right? I love these people in Cotty, as I'm sure you can tell. But in one sense, they are not exceptional. They were entirely randomly selected people, right? That could have been anyone. This hunger for reconnection and, and for rediscovery of meaning and other people and meaningful values is just beneath the surface yeah. for all of us, right? Uh, and and arguably, it's the most important thing as a society we should be trying to promote. Um, that that quote is profound. I can't stop thinking about it. It's like home is when someone notices when you are not there. Yeah. That concludes this episode and this season of my Feel Better Live More podcast. What did you think? Did you enjoy that compilation episode? Do you want more episodes like this one? As always, let me know, jump onto social media and tell me what you thought. If you can, please do use the hashtag FBLM so that I can easily find your comments. Before I sign off, I do want to say a big thank you. Thank you to each and every single one of you who listen every single week, who comments on my social media posts about the podcast, who tell your friends and family about the show. I really do appreciate it. You have all helped to spread the word about the show and have made it one of the most listened to health podcasts in the whole of Europe. It is really exciting that this information is getting out now to more and more people. I have to say, I absolutely love doing this podcast. I get to talk to a whole variety of different guests about a whole range of different topics. And my goal is to try and keep it fresh every single week, to change up the topics, to talk about areas of health that perhaps you may not have considered before. For me, this show is not just about putting out the same advice every single week, but trying to do something different, trying to share stories in a different way. In fact, my favorite comments are those where you guys tell me that you didn't think you were gonna like a topic when you saw the title, 
But once you started listening, you were hooked. That really, really makes me happy and excited to do more and more different topics. As always, the goal with these podcasts is to give you fresh, but importantly, accessible information that you can apply in your own life immediately to improve the way that you feel. Just to reiterate something I have said before, but when listening to my conversations, you know, take what you want from them, take what you need, take what resonates with you and abandon the rest. You know, I'd really encourage you to self-experiment, find out what works for you. There is no one right way to achieve good health. You are unique, your lifestyle, your beliefs, your environment. And if you disagree with one of my guests, then that is absolutely fine. I don't agree with everything that every single one of my guests say, but I love having my views challenged and I do try and maintain a healthy, respectful dialogue at all times. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, I am going to be trying my best to switch off this summer. I'll be putting a very clear out of office on my email inbox. I'll be trying to do different things, spending more time in nature, spending more time with my family, spending more time unplugged from technology. And also I'll be working really hard on my barefoot running technique, which last week's guest, Tony Riddle, is helping me with. In fact, if you want to see a video of Tony and I running barefoot together, do head over to my YouTube channel, drchastity.com forward slash YouTube. You're going to see a lot of clips from that podcast. There's a lot of resources on that channel. And I'm actually looking to film more content, more of the podcast content and share more hints and tips from podcasts in video form. So do have a look at the latest videos and the short cut downs that I've made on my YouTube channel. And let me know what you think. Let me know what you want more of. So, so what about you? What are you going to do this summer? Do you have a holiday planned? Do you have some time off planned? Whatever it is, really try and apply some of the things that you have learned on this podcast over the past 12 months. In fact, episode 64 with James Warman on how to spend time, it's an absolutely brilliant resource if you want to understand how to make the best use of whatever time off that you have. Uh, There are so many tips there on how you create stories, how you become a hero in your own life, spending time in nature, spending time offline, you know, really, really important things that I really think make a huge difference. So if you've not heard that one yet, do check it out. But whatever it is that you have decided to do, I'd encourage you to let somebody else know. Whenever you're trying to make behavior change, one of the best ways is to really stay accountable. It's a really important part of making any change sustainable. And I'd encourage you to go to my new Facebook group, Dr. Chatterjee Four Pillar Community Tribe. This is a new group that I set up to create a really supportive community. So many of you have joined up already. It's amazing to see you guys commenting there every day, commenting each week, supporting each other on making changes, sharing the tips that you found useful with other people to really help inspire and empower as many people as possible to live these happy and healthy lives. So guys, do go and check it out. It is really safe and supportive space. Uh, If you want to talk about the podcast each week with other listeners, that is the best place to do it. Um, You can let me know about new guests that you want, new topics. Do you want more episodes where I'm interviewed? Do you want more episodes like this one? Do you want solo episodes where I talk about a particular topic for 15 to 20 minutes? Do you want the long-form conversations that I've been doing over the past six months? Or do you prefer the short 20-30 minute episodes? I'd love to know your view. My own personal view is that the longer conversations are better. I can go deeper, we can get more interesting and exciting conversations, uh, and that is exactly what I'm trying to do on this podcast. 
A final request before I sign off. Many of you ask me on email and on social media how you can support this podcast. As you know, this podcast takes me a lot of time, a lot of resource, a lot of expense, um, but I'm committed to continuing and I'm looking for more and more ways to make this sustainable. One of the best ways that you can support this podcast is to tell people about the show. So my heartfelt request to you is this summer, can you commit to telling five people about this podcast, five people who don't already know about this show? Perhaps you can think about a particular episode that you think will resonate with them and recommend them to start listening there. If each of you recommend this podcast to five separate people, we will have dramatically increased the listenership by the time that I relaunch in September. This will mean that I can access more and more exciting guests, but most importantly, it means that more people around the world will have access to what I consider really important information. More people will be improving their lives, and ultimately together, all of us will be helping create a healthier and a happier society. You can also support the podcast and my work by picking up a copy of my first two books, The Four Pillar Plan and The Stress Solution. A lot of the content in these podcasts is succinctly summarized in both of my books to help give you actionable information to improve the way that you feel, to improve your health, to improve your life. If you're not a big fan of reading, both of my books are available in audiobooks. I am narrating both of those audiobooks. The only one I am not narrating is in the US and Canadian version of my first book, The Four Pillar Plan, which is called How to Make Disease Disappear. I don't narrate that audiobook, but I've heard good reports about the narrator nonetheless. So guys, that is it for season two of my podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy your summer and I will be back in early September. Make sure that you have pressed subscribe so that you get notified when the first episode of season three gets released. I've got some fabulous conversations already lined up. I know you're going to absolutely love them. You can also sign up for my newsletter at drchastity.com forward slash subscribe. You get six videos that I have made to help you increase more energy. That is one of the best ways to keep up to date with what I'm doing, with any new research I've got, any new information I've found. And I send it out on a weekly newsletter that I'll be relaunching in September. So guys, do subscribe to that email list if you want more information. A big thank you to Richard Hughes for editing, Vedata Chatterjee for producing, and to the rest of the team, Joe Murphy and Claire Moore. If you would like to join my team to help me spread my message, do send an email to info at drchatterjee.com with your details. I'm currently looking for videographers, copywriters, and maybe some social media help. I'm not entirely sure of everything that I need yet, but if you are interested, do get in touch. That is it. Enjoy your summer and remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.